Well, we said a minute ago that we're wrapping up our house rules series. Um, what I didn't say is what house rules are. If you're new, we have these different house rules, which are really ways for us to codify and quantify what does grace feel like and what do we want the church, like the culture of our church to feel like. So for example, our first house rule is we want this to be a place where it's okay to not be okay. So that's the house rule is it's okay not to be okay. It's basically what we, what we see in scripture, these different aspects of the gospel that then impact how we see ourselves and how we see others. And this week we are wrapping it up with the house rule of it's not, not that it's okay to be okay. I almost said that, but with everybody is a somebody. Everybody is a somebody. Um, this idea, I didn't have the language that we're using today for it or, or this house rule, but this idea really sunk into me in, in college. Um, when I read this book called The Weight of Glory by C.S. Lewis. I don't know if you've ever had these moments where you, you remember, you'll forever remember like the first time you saw something or heard something. I'll, I'll forever remember the first time I saw the Grand Canyon in person. And you just get there and you're like, I, you've seen pictures, but they just don't do it justice. Or like the first time I ever heard where the streets have no name by you two in person. I was just like, you know, crying. And, uh, and, it, was, and it was awesome. It's just, I had these moments that I remember and I'll forever remember when I first read um, The Weight of Glory. If you haven't read it, I, I highly recommend it to you. Um, some people would say it's one of the greatest things written in the last few hundred years in Christianity. Like, and it's actually, it's a book, but then specifically there's an essay that was originally in a dress that a guy named C.S. Lewis wrote um, and gave. And I remember buying it at a Barnes & Noble and then on a Sunday and taking it to my dorm and just reading it. And the entire thing's incredible. So many highlights on it. But then towards the last few pages, he gets to this section that when I got to it, I mean, it just blew me away. I, I had to stop reading and just really pause and ponder what I had just read. And I, we're going to have it for you on the screen, but I'm going to read it for us as, as you're getting to read along with me on the screen. Because when I, when, I, when I read this, it changed how I saw people. C.S. Lewis says this, It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. What Lewis is referring to there is eternity and what people will be like when they go into eternity. To remember that the dullest and most interesting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, art, civilization, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. I just remember reading that and how I, how I saw people changed forever. And I think this message is so needed from C.S. Lewis and what we're going to see from more, even more than that, from God's word, because we live in a day where people don't see each other like that, do they? That's not common. Um, we live in a day where it's very easy for us to see others as nobodies, as less than. Um, we see it for sure, like on social media and just the, the hatred and the stuff that go back and forth on social media over a range of different topics. We see it so much in our nation right now in the political sphere which used to be every like four years that we would see this, but now it just feels like it is continuous. This vitriol and vile where 
if we disagree, it's not just enough that we disagree, but now you are an enemy and now you are an awful person and, and, and I can treat you in a certain way that is really beneath who they are. Um, we see it in our world, obviously, throughout the world in terms of the wars and the violence that's going on. People treating each other like nobodies. And so one of the things I believe God wants us to do, and that's what really just, just stopped me in my tracks when I read this, was to learn to see people the way God sees people. And but what I mean by that is not just other people, but I'd also add to learn to see ourselves the way God sees us. Because I know some people that, honestly, they, they look at other people very much through God's eyes and they see beauty and, and just amazingness. But when they look at themselves in the mirror or just figuratively, they think the worst thoughts about themselves. They think they're trash. They think they're worthless. But that's not what they are. That's not what you are. What we believe is everybody is a somebody. And we believe this because, not just again, C.S. Lewis said it, really more than that. We believe it because scripture says it and shows it. What we're going to be in in this passage today is in John chapter 4, if you want to go ahead and start flipping there. It's a classic story of Jesus and the woman of Samaria, Jesus and the woman at the well. Because in this what we get to see is, is a picture of how Jesus sees everybody. But again, I want it to be something that we learn to see ourselves this way, but then also we learn to see others this way. Um, just as a heads up, usually what we do is, is we all stand up and we read the whole passage and then kind of break it apart. Because there's a lot of cultural nuance in this passage and there's a pretty big cultural distance between us and the passage, I'm going to do things a little bit differently for us this morning. So in a minute, we are going to stand and read a, a shorter section that's really more towards the end where we're going to eventually um, get to and kind of pause and camp out. Um, but what I'm actually going to do after I just read that short section is go back and then just read a few verses at a time and point out some big cultural things you need to know that maybe you wouldn't know just by reading it. Uh, I was thinking like used to when I grew up in, I grew up in church and um, like on Sunday nights or Wednesday nights, we did more like a, an inductive Bible study where like someone would stand up kind of like this and like just kind of go through God's word and point some stuff out. This is going to feel more like an inductive Bible study that we're doing together this morning. And I hope that's okay. I'm going to definitely have some moments where I'm going to preach for sure. But, but I want us just to walk through the text just to help us see some things that we may not see so that we can see how God sees us and others. Um, with that in mind, let's do stand together, though, and read God's word. And we're going to start, even though we're going to cover some good amount of ground, we're going to start ahead in the story, kind of to where we're working towards. And we're going to start at verse 25 and then go through verse 30. And then I'll go back and start in verse 1 once we're all seated together. This is God's word. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They've marveled that he was talking with the woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. You may be seated. So that's where we're heading but I want to take us back now and, and walk us in the verses preceding and really show us why that is incredibly amazing what just happened and, and really all that's happening kind of behind the scenes there. Um, let's start then back in verse one. We're going to have these on the screen, by the way, and I encourage you also to have, have a Bible open and be taking notes as we're walking through because I think this will really help you in your study in the Bible in the future as you approach this passage. So now having all that said, let's go back and start kind of going through. Now when Jesus heard, let me sorry, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize 
baptized, but only his disciples. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, or Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. A um, little bit of context for where we're at literally physically. We have a map on the screen that'll kind of show you the area where Jesus was at. So Jesus was in Judea, or Judea, depending on how you pronounce it. This is in the southern area here. Samaria is this shaded in region. And then he wants to go up to Galilee that was in the north. So a little bit about Samaria and, and why this would have been an issue. Um, Back in the Old Testament, you had at one time a united kingdom, just the people of God, the people of Israel. Then at one point that split and you had the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Both continued to rebel against God. So in punishment, God sent them both into exile, but at different times. In the northern kingdom, Israel, he sent them into exile around the year 721. A group of people called the Assyrians came in, took over and sent most of the people back to different countries. And then, but what they did, their tactic was, they would then bring people from other countries and settle them into the land in their place. Those people that they brought in who worshiped other gods and were from different ethnicities and races intermarried with the people who were left behind. And so you had people who were intermarrying with each other, which by the way, the Old Testament forbidden Israelites to intermarry with foreigners. And then they began worshiping their other gods as well. And these people became known as Samaritans because they lived in an area called Samaria. Jews hated Samaritans, hated them because they looked at them as sellouts. Like they had sold out the true faith and now are believing in other gods. Although over time, um, people in Samaria did really believe in the God of the Old Testament. They just only believe the first five books and they also created their own temple and their own worship, which God forbid as well. But still, like they saw them as sellouts. They saw them as half-breeds. They called them dogs a lot of the time. Jews hated Samaritans to the point where like they were, they basically said, don't go near a Samaritan because you could actually become unclean. Now that doesn't mean anything to us. And if I say that, you probably think like literally like, like physically dirty, like no. Back in this time, the worship of God revolved around the temple. And what they believed was that if you came into contact with something that was unclean, you could not then go worship at the temple, which means that your fellowship, your worship of God was cut off and you were cut off from the people. Because if you're unclean, no one's going to come near you because they don't want to get unclean. You follow me so far? I know there's a lot of background. What Jews believed was that if you came into contact with the Samaritan or touched something they touched, you were unclean. And so because of that, most Jews did not go through Samaria. So when it said that Jesus had to go through Samaria, it does not mean that he literally physically had to go there geographically like he had no choice. Because in fact, there were multiple routes through Samaria. We have another picture on the screen. I know it's a little hard because they're dotted lines, but the white line is the line that went right through Samaria and it's the line that Jesus took. But there was actually a route to the right in red around Samaria that many people would have taken so that they did not have to go through Samaria and be around people that they hated and potentially become unclean. In fact, most people took this route. So when Jesus, when it, when it says that he had to go through Samaria, it, it's not talking about physically he had no choice. Rather, when it uses this word, it's the word day in, in the New Testament Greek. There's usually like a divine compulsion behind it and a divine plan. Jesus had to go through Samaria, not because he had to physically or geographically. He had to because he had a plan that he was leaning into and that he was walking in and he had a plan for something he was going to do there. So already we kind of got this idea of, okay, something is going to go down and he's going through a really place where he shouldn't have been, but for a very specific reason. 
All right. So then we come to verse six. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, weird as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, which would have been around noon, midday. So really hot. He's really tired. So as he's sitting at the well, it says this in verse seven, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Here's why that's interesting. Um, In this culture, women were the ones who would come and draw water, but they would draw it in the morning or in the late afternoon. Why? Because it's hot. They don't want to be there when it's hot. They want to be there when it's easier to get the water. But then also that time would become a time of socialization with other women. In fact, it was one of the few times where women could socialize with other women because they were doing a common task together at the same time. The fact that this woman is coming out at noon in the heat of the day when Jesus is there and there's no other women there is a major flag. Like light should be going off saying, okay, something's off here. And it's because you got to remember, this is what's called an honor-shame culture. That depending on stuff that you did or that stuff that had been happened to you, shame or honor would be attached to you. And if it was shame, other people would want nothing to do with you. So this woman, we don't know why in the story, we're going to see why in a little bit, this woman has some kind of shame attached to her that is causing her to come in the middle of the day when no other women are around her. And she can be alone. And then Jesus is there. Usually, if this happens in this culture, because men and women did not talk in public at all, 99.9999999% of the time, Jesus is here and a woman comes up, he's going to probably step over here to get distance, to not make it look like any kind of improprieties going on, and to make sure he does not become unclean. But Jesus doesn't do that. What does it say in the next verse? I mean, actually, in the same verse, Jesus said to her, give me a drink. <laughs> this is so controversial. Like, to us, this is normal because, like, for example, um, when I go to Woods Coffee, I don't know if you do this when you go to Woods or another place, like, I'll order a drink, and while we're waiting, a lot of times the barista or barista or however you pronounce that will say, like, hey, how's your day going? We're like, what's your plans for the day? So very normal for us to interact when we're doing a common activity or at a common place. Like, Jesus is breaking so many social conventions right here. I already said a minute ago, like, men did not talk to women in public, Definitely not if you were a single man, and definitely if you were not a rabbi. And definitely if you were a rabbi, you never talked to a woman in public. In fact, one rabbi um, in, a, in a writing that he left behind said that if you talked to a woman for more than 20 or 30 minutes, just assume that they are having an affair with her. So you just didn't talk to people. And in fact, a few generations after this, not a few generations, I say a few decades after this, a law was passed in Israel to say never talk to a Samaritan woman or come near her because she is perpetually unclean. Codifying what people already believed at this time. So Jesus is breaking so many conventions talking to a woman and talking to a Samaritan. Crazy what he's doing here. Flipping everything upside down. Which is why then in the next verse, because I, I skipped over, his disciples had gone to, to way to buy food. But in the next verse, in verse nine, it says, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So even the woman recognizes like, oh, whoa, whoa, like, what are you doing? Something's not normal. Okay. Verse 10, Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who is it that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Remember that. We're going to come back to that, especially when we get to the end of their conversation. But Jesus like, if you knew who you were talking to, like you would ask me for living water and I would give it to you. Which even the, he just said like, I am willing to deal with you as a normal person. I'm willing to give you this living water. 
Again, breaking all kind of conventions. The woman doesn't get it. Um, she says to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. The reason that she missed this is because when Jesus said living water, we would probably approach it usually if you're, if you're a believer in Jesus. Like, oh, he's talking about like spiritually, and that is how Jesus meant it. But that term living water um, literally meant water that was moving. And this well where they were at, which is, by the way, still there today, it's covered by a Greek Orthodox church, which is, by the way, just a reminder for us that these are real people in real places. Like, this really happened. These are real people in real places. Um, that well was fed by an underground spring with running water, or as they would have called it, living water. So the woman thinks he's actually talking about physical water. He's not talking about that. And so then he goes on to say, everyone who drinks of this water, literally referring to the well, will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So Jesus is trying to say, he's like, hey, I'm not talking about the physical water. I'm talking about a thirst that we all have that nothing in this world can satisfy, but only me. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you have a thirst. Everyone has a thirst that only I can satisfy. In fact, most commentators believe that that idea of the water welling up to eternal life refers to the Holy Spirit, which what we receive after we've believed in Jesus. So he's saying, listen, I've got something that only I can give you that can satisfy you. The woman still doesn't get it, though. Uh, she's still more focused on the physical part of it. And that's why she says, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So she's not getting it at this point. So Jesus now is going to seem like he's like really taking like a really hard left or right turn. But he's, in, he's doing something intentional here. He's trying to get to the root of the issue and really help her understand what he is talking about. So all of a sudden, it seems like he shifts the conversation, but he really just has a plan that he's going for. He said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying that I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now, I want to go ahead and say in the front end, and I'm going to come back around this in a few minutes. Jesus here is not shaming or scolding her. It's not what he's doing. I'm going to come back to what he's doing here in a minute. I want us to slow down and be very careful right here. Because this is where a lot of people have built up a lot of misconceptions about the story in this woman. Jesus does refer to some sin that's in her life. He says, hey, you're living with the guy that's not your husband. It seems like she is either shacking up with the man or that she's having an affair with the married man. So that he does point to some sin in her life. But then a lot of times when people hear about, oh, her having five husbands, I'll hear these sermons or these people talking about this and they'll say, oh, see, she was just this awful woman, just was sleeping around all the time, couldn't get her act together. She was terrible. We forget that in this culture, a woman had no power to divorce a man. Zero. The man always divorced the woman and he could do it for any reason that he saw fit. So there's stories that we have where literally men divorced their wife because they couldn't cook. <laughs> they divorced their spouse because like one reason they could is they could say, oh, she has a physical like, de defect and they didn't see that touch. They'd gotten married, wedding night kind of a stuff. And then if they didn't like that, they could go the next day and say, nope, divorce her. All they had to do was go and sign a legal contract, give the reason why. And then in public three times, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. That's it. And then the woman had to leave the husband's physical premises, which meant that if she didn't have a family, She's now extremely vulnerable. Let's put ourselves like in the shoes of this woman. 
Yes, there is sin that she's been committing. Jesus points that out. But multiple times, and this, but we don't even know, like, it doesn't say whether the, like, she was divorced or maybe a ton of her husbands died. And so she's had to live through that pain as well. Like multiple times, she's either had to live through the pain of losing a husband because he died or multiple times a man has looked at her in the middle of the community in front of others and said, I don't want you. And then sent her away. And because he's done it in the presence of others, and they live in an honor-shame culture, she now has the shame of that, and no one else wants anything to do with her because over and over again, it's happened to her. This woman is bearing shame and pain, some of which she had nothing to do with. Listen, like in every relationship, we're the only common denominator, so I'm sure she had some issues with her, and if there was a divorce, yes. But sometimes we want to put it all on the woman and say, this woman was bearing shame that she had no choice with, like over. And she was bearing the weight of the sin that she had committed. Jesus points it out not to scold her or to shame her. I think he points it out because she wasn't getting where he was trying to go with the conversation. So he brings up this because he knows that this is the thing that's keeping her from receiving the living water that only Jesus can offer. She had been going to all these other things for security, for life, to multiple men, to a guy that she was now living with or sleeping with, and nothing was satisfying her. And until she faced that, so she faced that nothing could satisfy her, but Jesus, she was never going to receive the living water. But let me just, like, Jesus is not scolding her, shaming her. He is actually giving her honor and dignity by talking to her and engaging with her and engaging with her on a level that he would with anyone else. If you go back to John 3, he speaks to a Jewish man, a Jewish like scholar of the Bible, and they speak very similar to her. He is honoring her. He's speaking to her on a level. So he points this out. He says these things. Then I, <laughs> I love this line. Verse 19, the woman said to her, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. <laughs> I just love that. It's like he just like puts all of her stuff out there. She hadn't said anything. There's no, like this guy is not from Samaria. How could he know all this? He puts it out there. He's like, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Yeah, um, and more than that. And so um, she now all of a sudden says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Um, some people think that she's changing the subject because Jesus has gotten really personal. She's like, whoa, let's get the focus off of me and onto something else here. Let's not talk about this. Other people would say like, no, like she's, she, she is changing the subject, but not to get the attention off of her, but because this guy's just told her all this and she's like, oh, you have some kind of a connection with God that I don't have. And so while I've got your attention, there's this major debate. Literally where they're standing is in view of another mountain where the temple in Samaria used to be, but it was destroyed. And so she says, hey, like, do you, like, are we supposed to worship on this mountain or is it like what you Jews believe in? It's in Jerusalem. Is it here where we can see or is it in Jerusalem? Either way, Jesus just keeps following the track of the conversation because he's leading her exactly to where he wants her to go. So Jesus says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain, literally the one they could see, nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. So Jesus takes a moment and actually corrects some of her theology right here. He's not saying, hey, everything you believe is right. He corrects some of her theology. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So he's saying, hey, the days are coming and are now here where all this is being turned upside down and it's going to be different. It's not going to be about worshiping in this mountain, in this temple, or in this place, in this other temple. It's really a different kind of worship that God is seeking. 
It's in spirit and truth, which is interesting because if Jesus was referring to the Holy Spirit that comes in after believing, he's basically saying is, hey, you got to believe in me so that you can worship in spirit and truth. And this is what I love this is like, he's just, he's leading her to this moment that she couldn't get to on his own. But then it comes to this. The woman said to him, well, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all these things. Jesus has gotten her to the moment. That's where he says, I who speak to you am he. Now let's remember that first comment that he made to her back at the beginning. If you knew the gift of God who was saying, and who is it that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he, you would have, he would have given you living water. She now knows who he is. And he basically, basically, I think it's like, hey, the offer still stands. I am the Messiah. And I'm the one who can satisfy the thirst that you have that no man, that no husband, that no guy you're living with could ever satisfy. I can overcome the shame that has been put on you and the sin that you have committed yourself. Offer's yours. And now we know later that she takes the offer because she goes into town and begins telling people. And later in the story that we're not going to get to and read, um, the people in the town say, hey, like, we now believe, not because you said he was the Messiah, but because we've come to see it ourselves. So she had apparently had believed he was the Messiah. She takes him up on the offer. Now, but then I love this. Verse 27, just then his disciples came back. Great timing. Um, it is great timing because I think this is one of the big things that Jesus is actually doing here. And we'll get to that here in just a minute. Just stick with me a little bit longer. We're about to get to this kind of place where we slow down and really kind of get our minds around what Jesus is doing. They marveled that he was talking with the woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and we're coming to him. So the disciples come back. And, you know, they're like, oh, like this isn't normal. They see it, but they don't say anything. And you got this woman there and the guy's there at the same time. Now let's actually talk about these different groups of people. And maybe some things they have in common uh, or don't have in common, some things they have in common. Let's put our first group up on the screen. These are the disciples. There was maybe more than this there because Jesus traveled with a group of people. But we know at least that he had the 12 with him there. Peter, Andrew, James, John, Judas, Thomas, Bartholomew, Philip, Matthew, Simon, the Zealot, James, and Jude. Let's talk about these guys for just a second. What's something they all have in common with each other? For the most part, they would have been nobodies in the eyes of Jewish culture for different reasons, though. So like Peter, Andrew, James, and John, the first four on the list were fishermen, blue-collar workers. Listen, there's nothing wrong with that. Follow me for a second, though. Um, in, in that culture, as a child, you would have been trying to learn uh, what's called the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And if you were really skilled at memorizing it and learning it, you could have attached yourself to a rabbi, but you had to know it well. Like you had to literally memorize the first five books, at least, of the Bible. If you weren't the sharpest tool in the tool shed or the toolbox, whatever the phrase is, um, you did not get attached to a rabbi. Instead, you went home and you took on the profession of your parents. So when they are fishermen, it's because they couldn't cut it the way the others in society could. Let's talk about a few others. Oh, Matthew. I love my guy, Matthew, also called Levi. So Matthew's a tax collector. Okay, if you don't know what a tax collector was or did, like here's the idea. Rome was a foreign oppressor, came in, took over this area, brutalized their people, um, but then they would tax the people there. And so they would use the local Jewish people to tax their own people. So here you have a Jewish person taxing others to raise money for a foreign oppressor. And not only that, but they would take extra off at the top to make themselves rich. Just people saw these people as scum of the earth. In fact, there was another group called the Zealots. 
the zealots hated Rome and these people so much that they would often go around killing them in crowds. They would walk past them, get a little knife, just stab them, and then walk on. Which is interesting, because you have Matthew the tax collector, and who's the next guy? Simon the zealot. Oh, man, like campfires at night would have been really fun. Like, you know, it's like Matthew sleeping with one eye open kind of a thing. It's just, whoo, okay. But like, here's the thing with all these guys, and I could go in more and more and more. They weren't the cream of the crop. In the eyes of most of the people, they would have been nobodies. But what? Jesus picked them. He wanted them. They were his guys. Now, they're in the presence of a Samaritan woman. Let's put the Samaritan woman up on the screen with them next to it. What do they not have in common? This is where if we had a little bit more time, we'd make this interactive, and I'd let you throw out some stuff, but I think we're a little bit tight on time. So let me just highlight some things that I noticed. So what do these people right here on the screen not have in common? Let's put it up on the screen for us, that next slide. Their gender. Very different. Obviously, but again, we have to remember in this culture, males were the predominant people. Women were not. Ethnicity and race was different. Different religious views, different sin struggles, different sources of shame. And aren't you glad that after 2,000 years, these things no longer divide us and they no longer make us think that we're better than other people and these are no longer sources of tension? It's just, I'm so glad we've advanced so much as a society and a culture. (laughs) Sorry, my sarcasm, I need to repent. Anyways, um, yeah, so vastly different people. But now, let's think about what did they have in common. They were all, every one of them, everybody on that screen was and is a somebody. Specifically, and we're going to go through this now, somebody who was created by Jesus. Um, In the book of Colossians, Colossians 1, speaking of Jesus, it says, By him all things were created in heaven and on earth. All things were created through him and for him. In Genesis 1, it says that people create in the image of God, which means they have everybody, by their very fact they were created, has infinite worth and dignity and honor. But just think about this. Every single person that was on that screen was created by Jesus. Like in Psalm 139, it talks about how God knits us together in our mother's wombs. That means Jesus knitted the Samaritan woman in her mother's womb before she ever endured all the shame she bared, before she ever committed any sin, he knitted her together, and none of her shame or sin undid that. She was still just as created by Jesus as these other guys who were different from her. Okay? So each of them, everybody on that screen that was there before, created by Jesus, everybody was loved by Jesus. Everybody. Everybody was seen by Jesus. And when I mean seen, I don't just mean like right now, I see you, you see me like, Seen in the sense of acknowledged, like treated as a human. But not just that, everyone on that screen was wanted by Jesus. I love, I think it's in Mark 2 or 3, where when Jesus calls the disciples, the guys who were on the screen, it says he called those whom he wanted. That's just amazing, right? He, out of all the, he wanted them. Like, oh, I guess I got to pick somebody. I just might as well be. He wanted them. Jesus also wanted this woman. He wanted this woman like, I, I can, I, that's the idea that he had to go through Samaria, not because he physically or geographically had to. He had to go because he wanted to meet this woman at the well. I almost wonder if he was so tired because he was booking it so much and the disciples were trying to keep up with him. He's like, why are you going so fast? I got to make it here before noon. Because <laughs> someone's going to be there and I got to meet them because he wants her. 
It's once about Jesus. Everybody on that screen was used powerfully by Jesus. So obviously you got the disciples, right? Like they're sent out at the end and they go and change the world and they're sent out with the great commission. Here, if if you notice in the story, the woman goes back to the town that she came from and begins telling everybody about Jesus. We didn't read this, but basically revival breaks out. Jesus stays for a couple more days and everybody's lives in that town are changed. What here's what's amazing. She goes back to the town. Who had just come back from the town? The disciples, who apparently had told no one about Jesus. No one is coming back with them. So she goes and she tells them about Jesus when they weren't telling people about Jesus. Both were used powerfully by God. And because of that, everybody that was on that screen, everybody, period, is a somebody. Somebody created by Jesus, loved by Jesus, seen by Jesus, wanted by Jesus, and can be used powerfully by Jesus. No exceptions. And like, I would say this is so much of the point of this story because a lot of people oftentimes will just focus on the idea that Jesus can fulfill a thirst that we don't have. And that is so true. But if that were the only point of the text, he could have made that same point at any well in Judea or Galilee. He could have gone to any well that was out there in Judea or Galilee to Jewish people or to a Jewish man and had the same conversation. He came to Samaria to a woman to illustrate, no, I am giving living water and it's available for everybody because everybody's a somebody. Everybody that was on that screen and everybody that is now going to be on the screen as we go through a few pictures together. Everybody on the screen is a somebody. And everybody on this screen now. And the next one. And the next one. We can linger there for just one second. Not everyone just on the screen, but everybody in here. I actually thought about like taking a selfie and then like texting it back to them to see if I was like, ah, that'll take too long. We're a little tight on top. But you are a somebody. Let's, just, let's, let's go from everybody. Let's just talk personally here for a second. You are a somebody. You are a somebody. If I could right now, if I had this time, I'd go around to each of you in the like, room and just look at you in the eyes and say, you are a somebody. No matter your gender, your ethnicity or race, your political views, your mental health condition, no matter whatever, you are somebody created by Jesus, loved by Jesus, seen by Jesus, wanted by Jesus, and you can be used powerfully by Jesus. No exceptions. And I hope you can just learn to see yourself Regardless of what's happened to you or regardless of what you've done, I hope you can see yourself the way God sees you. And some of you in here are like, oh, that's easy for you to say, but if you knew my story, you wouldn't say that. Um, I like to imagine it like this. If Jesus at the very beginning of the story had said, hey, I am the Messiah, the woman maybe would have said, oh, then you probably shouldn't be talking to somebody like me. And Jesus would look at her and say, I came here for you. And Jesus would look at you in this moment and say, if you are thinking that I came to this earth for you, I died a horrible death on a cross for you. No exceptions. No exceptions. That's how God sees you. And I I love what some people do um, for stuff like this. I know that some people, what they'll do, this might be a good practice for some of you if you wrestle with seeing yourself this way. um, I've known people that'll get these kinds of phrases and they'll put them on a mirror so that every, and then they'll usually attach Bible verses to them to kind of make it just be real, real more firm. And it's just their way of reminding themselves of how God sees them. And listen, you should do that. But here's something else I want us to really realize this morning is that 
that is not just how God sees you or God sees me. It's also how God sees everybody else around us and in the world. So we got to go from looking at a mirror in ourselves, how God sees us, to more looking through a window to see how God sees everyone else. So God did see every person on that screen and everybody in the room as someone who is wanted, loved, seen, all those things. But he also believes and sees the same thing about these people. People living in homelessness. Maybe through their own bad choices or maybe through stuff they had no control over. Irregardless, every person created by, loved by, seen by, wanted by, can be used by Jesus. It's also true of every person on the next picture we have. Regardless of the ethnicity or race, the gender, the different religious views that are represented there, true of every single person there. It's also true of every person on the next screen. It just got really uncomfortable for some of you in here. <laughs> You're like, whoa, Paul, that's too far. That's too far. No, 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 no. That's too far. You might think, like, nope, exceptions. No, no, no exceptions. But I was like, like Paul, like, why don't, you should have done that. It's so controversial. I'm like, if we don't feel a little bit of discomfort and don't get a little sense of controversy this morning, I think we're missing a huge part of the text. What Jesus did was controversial went and talked to a woman, and it was a Samaritan, and it was controversial. So I don't care how controversial it is, every person on that screen in the foreground or the background, every person that supports either of those people is created by Jesus, loved by Jesus, seen by Jesus, won by Jesus, and can be used by Jesus. No exceptions. That is how Jesus sees them, and that's how we must see them. Now, listen, I could put up more pictures, but it'd be, I don't have that kind of access to your life and, and it'd be kind of creepy. And here's what I mean is like, there's obviously like, there's obviously like these examples that are like real obvious and like national and, inner, you know, kind of a thing. But like, it's also true of your boss who you just think is a jerk. Who, when they're not around, you just speak about them um, like they're a nobody. Like they're not a somebody. It's also true of that really annoying person at the ball field who like, you know, like at the sports and your kids are playing and like they bring a cowbell to try to distract the other team and you're like, oh my gosh. Uh. And, and, and you think if you're honest thoughts about them that probably treats them like less than somebody, it's true of them too. It's also true sometimes like these aren't big moments, but like there's moments where I, I just, I create evaluations of people without knowing their full story. And in that moment, it's true of them too. There is somebody, I need to know their story. It's true of the times where if you get angry as a parent and you like call your kid a brat and you've just formed part of their identity to that word, instead of saying, hey, their behavior was bad in that moment, you've now formed part of their identity by calling them a brat. There is somebody too. Everybody is a somebody because everybody is created by, loved by. I think you get the point. All right. So what do you do if you struggle with that, what do you do if you're like, if there is an exception for you to this rule? Or what do you do in that moment if you realize, oh man, I'm treating them like, um, like a nobody? I think this is what we do. I actually want to say, would go back to yourself first. Remind, my, remind yourself of who you were apart from Jesus. Of all your own shame that maybe you had nothing to do with you, but if something had been done to you, remind yourself of your own sin. And then remind yourself of how Jesus 
saw you. Jesus treated you in what he did for you. I wrote down this note when I was studying this text. Jesus treated the woman like no one else did, and then he gave the woman what no one else could. And the same is true for you. When you go back and reflect on who you were apart from Jesus, Jesus treated you like no one else did, and then he gave you what no one else could when he gave you living water and saved you. And then when you reflect on that, you begin not only to see yourself differently, you will begin to see other people differently because you have to remind yourself that not only did Jesus do that for me, he wants to do that for others. And part of how he wants to do that is through me. And then see other people the same way that Jesus sees you. And here's one final thing I thought of as I was reading this text. If nothing else, like especially if there's a person, it's not maybe a group of people, maybe there's a person, I would encourage you, Choose to be on mission towards them to show the love of Jesus towards them. I say it because in this text, it's not going to be on the screen, but there's this moment where the disciples, like all the Samaritan people are coming to Jesus. And it says, meanwhile, the disciples said, Jesus, we got food. I'm paraphrasing here. I just love it. It's like, hey, Jesus, like we got boomers. We picked up Chick-fil-A if it wasn't on a Sunday. And like, we got it for you. It's time for you to get about to eat. And then Jesus is like, I got food. That you, to, I got food you don't know anything about. Like, what are you talking about? And he basically is talking about, I'm here to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. And then he says, Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Now remember, he, they're in a real place. So when Jesus says, lift up your eyes, he's saying, look at all these Samaritans coming. All the people that you think are nobodies. The harvest is here. Go share the good news with them. Because it is hard to look at someone like a nobody when you're about to tell them they are somebody. Be on mission. So remind yourself of how Jesus saw you, sees you, what he did for you. That, listen, Jesus went to the cross and he bore your sin and your shame and let that be fuel for you to then treat other people the way Jesus has treated you and to tell them what Jesus can only do for them. Um, do you know what can happen if we begin to do this? The world can change. And, and, and literally, I mean like the whole world, because listen, like whole towns can change. Because like in this moment, because of how Jesus treated this woman and what he gave her, she goes back and tells others and the whole town has changed because of it. And like, I would argue that the whole first few hundred years after this, everything has changed because of how Jesus treated people and what he did for people, right? And listen, I'm not saying that you and I can go change the world and all the wars and the things that are happening right now, but what we can do is impact the people around us in our spheres of influence and treat them like a somebody because they are. And I actually thought about this this week. I was like, God, would you just give me like just a reminder, maybe how you've done this in a tangible way. And I have a friend named Amber who's from Mississippi. And this week as I'm preparing, she posts this story and I'm like, oh, thank you, Jesus. This is it. Um, and I want to just tell you our story. I want to show you like when we get this of how God sees us, how it can change us, but then also how it can change others. We have a picture, I believe, of Amber up on the screen. This was nine years ago. Amber had been arrested for drug use, meth, and some other things as well. And this is what she wrote earlier this week on social media. She said, this day nine years ago, my life was an absolute shambles. Poor choices due to my addiction caused, by, caused me to lose every single thing in my life, my marriage, kids, family, home, job, vehicle, integrity, reputation, the list goes on. I was living in self-will and destroying everything in my path. I had absolutely nothing. The shame and hopelessness that I felt was so heavy I could no longer carry it and continue on living that way. It was either get sober or die. That is exactly where God wanted me. Alone in an empty house in West Jackson, hopeless. November 14th, 2014. 
It was a Friday. My bed at the treatment center wasn't available until Monday. I still to this day don't know how I made it through that weekend without using. But I was dropped off at rehab and was so determined it would be my last time to ever walk through those doors. One day turned into one week, one week turned into one month, and one month turned into one year. I faced so many challenges in early recovery. Two weeks into treatment, I found out I was pregnant. I had mountains of debt that I was facing. I went through a divorce, had to fight my way back to having a relationship with my big boys. I found a job, and I just kept putting one foot in front of the other, trying to do the next right thing. I stayed sober because of Jesus. And the people he put in my path. People who were willing to be raw and real and vulnerable with me and sharing their testimonies. Amber came into our church and it was obvious that something was wrong. Like she was, it just felt like she was like that Samaritan woman. And, and I just sometimes shudder to think, what if when she came in, we had treated her like a nobody? But God, by his grace, helped us see her the way God saw her. And then she began to see herself the way God saw her. And her life began to change. In fact, I think we have a picture now of where she is now in life. She's remarried, has two new kids. She's not perfect. Because she learned to see herself the way God sees her, the way Jesus sees her. Everything changed. And also because other people saw her like that too. And then when, here's what's cool though is at the end of her post, she just begins telling people about how your story doesn't have to be as dramatic or chaotic for you to share it. God rescues people from all sorts of bondage. My inbox is always open if you need a listening ear and help. And so now she is going around and treating people the way Jesus treated her and telling others how he can do for them what he did for her. Oh, wow. Let's do this. Um, hey, Isaac, can we put those five statements back up on the screen? Some of you in here this morning, when we're having a time of prayer right now, you need to read these statements, but you need to read them for you, meaning you came in here with shame or with the guilt of something you've done, and I want you to read these statements as you just pray, and I just want you to remind yourself of how Jesus sees you. No exceptions. If you're here in this room, I don't care who you are, what you've done. You belong here with us. And Jesus created you. He loves you. He sees you. He wants you. And he can powerfully use you no matter what. Maybe, though, for you, that's not what you most need. Maybe what you most need is maybe there's someone in your life that you have forgotten that about them, too, though. And so maybe right now what you could do is just get a visual of them. Maybe it is like a potential president, or maybe it's just someone around you in your everyday life. And maybe just right now, just remind yourselves of those truths about them. But also remind yourself that the way you can see them that way is to see what Jesus did for you. And then that will empower you to do it for them. So let's just take a moment. I just want you to pray in your own heart. Look at those for reference. And then in a minute, I'll close this out in prayer and prepare us for communion.
Jesus, you went out of your way to meet a single woman, one woman, and you saw her in a way that no one else did, and you treated her so well, but then you gave her salvation and life, and everything changed. God, thank you, Jesus, for coming to this earth, for living a perfect life we couldn't live, for dying the death we deserve to die, so that you could give us that same life. Thank you for treating us so incredibly. And Lord, I want to pray right now for people in the room who they are living in shame or in the guilt of their sin. And I just pray right now that you would help them to see themselves the way you see them. That God's, yes, you may want to change some things in their life, but nothing they've done or that's been done to them cancels out any of those things that are on the screen. Help them to not just hear that with their minds and their ears right now, but Lord, that may that go deep in their hearts and explode in their hearts right now. God, I also just pray that you would help us to be, Lord, I thank you. God, I thank you that in my experience with, with Redeemer Church, Lord, we are people that are not perfect, but Lord, this is a house where I've gotten to see us live out so many times. And Lord, we just pray that, Lord, you would continue to empower us by your grace to continue to see everybody that comes in these doors as a somebody but also empower us now as people in our families, in our workplaces, at the ball fields, everywhere, Lord, to treat other people the way you've treated us and to tell them what you can do for them because you've done it for us. So God, everywhere we go, help us to see people the way that you see people. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.